Good morning, everyone. My name is Richard. I am an alcoholic. Hi, everybody. I'm here this morning because of God's grace. Because the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous work, and because of the love that has been given to me and shared freely by you and all the members of Alcoholics Anonymous. For that, I'm very grateful. It is because of this grace, because the steps work, and because of your love, that I haven't had it, have found it necessary now to take a drink for 27 days. Five months and 17 years. nice to see all those smiling faces out there this morning. The ones who are smiling are the ones who weren't out in the parking lot last night and slept all the way through it. I haven't spent so much time in a parking lot since the night of my senior prom. It's been a great weekend. I tell you, I have never, I, I, I just love going to old timers meetings. And I had never had so much fun as I did listening to the stories that were told yesterday at the old timers meeting. And, uh, I, I particularly enjoyed last night hearing my old friend Ann and, uh, she, she just uh, affects me so much, and I was so grateful that I had an opportunity to be here. Before I really start talk, uh, speaking this morning, I've got a, something I want to say. I, uh, I want to make this a little bit of an audience participation meeting. Uh, this has been one of the friendliest uh, weekends and conventions that I have been exposed to in a long time. But I just want to take one minute of your time, if I can, to make sure that there is not a single stranger in this room. And the way I want to do that is I'm going to ask us in just a second for all of us to stand up, and I'm going to ask each one of you to turn to the closest person who you do not know. No fair anybody you know. And greet them in the way you want to greet them, whether it's a shaking hands or a big hug or whatever. But let's just take one minute to make sure that there's no one here that hasn't got a hug and hasn't got a greeting and doesn't know somebody. Okay? Go.
Okay. All right. Stop. You're enjoying that too much. How to lose an audience in one easy lesson. Well, the big book tells me that my job this morning is to share with you in a general way what I was like, what happened to me, and what I am like today. And uh, I'm going to try to do that to the best I remember um, things. And I just want to especially tell you this morning that I want to talk a little bit about Miracles of Alcoholics Anonymous. We, uh, I think it was Irving yesterday in the old timers meeting that talked a little bit about one of the stories that I want to tell again a little later because I want to show you how much that story has affected my life and how I think it affects all of us together. As I said when I first started, I think it's, it, it, my higher power is God. I call my higher power God. And I think it is because of His grace that I'm here. I tell you one thing. When I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, if somebody had come up to me at my first meeting, during my first year, during my first two years in Alcoholics Anonymous, and put down a pad of paper on the desk and said right on there everything you want in Alcoholics Anonymous, I would have sold myself short because I could have never have dreamed of the miracles that would come my way by simply trying to listen, to reach out, to learn, to expose myself to this recovery program and in the best way possible to try to share that on down the line with those who come after me. I never would have dreamed in my wildest imagination that it could have been like it is today. One of the reasons I know I would have sold myself short is because I'm, I'm very uh, obstinate I'm very hard-headed. I don't listen to directions well. I uh, I try things my way first. <laughs> Still do. I I should have had a clue all along. One of the things that I believe about alcoholism and about Alcoholics Anonymous is that drinking is only a small part of it. You know, uh, I, I stand before you this morning saying that I do not have a drinking problem today. I have not had a drinking problem for a long, long time. But I also know that for every blessing that I've been given in Alcoholics Anonymous and every miracle that's happened, that there are also warnings. And one of the warnings of the big book is, is that our, our sobriety is not a permanent gift. 
It's a daily gift based upon the maintenance of our spiritual condition. It says that not long after it talks about these promises that we read so much at our meetings these days. And I have to remember that because I have to try to the best of my ability to plug myself into that power that has kept me sober for these days and months and years. And I have to do it on a daily basis to the extent that I am able to remember to try to make conscious contact with God as I understand Him on a daily basis, my days are good. My days are wonderful. But when I forget, and when, when I take over, and when I do my thing, I have a lot of problems. And uh, I have to remember what you taught me about working this program on a daily basis. I brought character defects to the table when I came to AA. And those character defects are part of my alcoholism. They're my character defects. And uh, if they are going to be changed or overcome, it depends on my work to try to listen to what you say, to live a changed life that is not, is not controlled by my character defects. I don't always do that well, and, and it's, it's not surprising now to me in retrospect, because my whole life was full of all these character defects. And I had feelings, too, that, that were very prominent in my life long before I ever took a drink. Feelings that went all through my drinking and were exaggerated. The two feelings that I remember the most are being lonely and being depressed most of my childhood. And it shouldn't have been that way because I lived in a, in a, a good family. I was raised in a small town. I guess by now you realize I'm not from New York. <laughs> raised in a fine Christian home. That hotbed of alcoholism. <laughs> I went, started life very young kid in a and going to Sunday school at the Methodist Church down in Montpelier, Ohio. And uh that was the beginning of my search for God. And this is an example of my hard headedness and not following directions. I mean I my my mother was a Sunday school teacher, my father was sang in the choir. We went to church at least once every Sunday. I had went to Sunday school every day and I had one of those long lines of perfect attendance pins down my lapel on my blue blazer. And uh, that lasted until puberty. <laughs> and then I found out that most of the good-looking girls in my class went to church at the Christian church. So I became a Christian churchgoer. And... Uh, didn't learn much about God there. And I went to the Presbyterian Church and the Baptist Church, Evangelical United Brethren. I studied Judaism, tried Baha'i, 
went to a few Oral Roberts tent meetings. <laughs> now that I've lived out here five years, I've even dated a Catholic girl. <laughs> I've been dunked more times than you can count on both hands. And the point is that that was all about my search for God. I've always wanted to find God, wanted to talk to him, wanted him to talk to me. I wanted to know if I was going to heaven or not. I wanted to know this and that and the other thing and why men made up this and, and all these things. I was curious. It's very curious to me that I found that it took a bunch of nameless drunks to show me that the basic idea of God is deep down within the heart of every man and woman. And I thank you for teaching me that. Because my search to be able to communicate and make contact with my God on a daily basis is over. My search for what he wants of my life is a daily thing and not nearly over, I hope. But I did other things wrong. It wasn't only search for God or religion. I, it took me ten years to get a four-year degree going to seven colleges. I've been married and divorced three times. I don't, I don't learn very well, very quickly. My family was kind of like the Kennedys. They talked about these big family gatherings. They had, just take a few zeros off at the end. Or, and uh, I was, I, I, they talk about these big family gatherings they had down at Hyannis Fort. And all these family dinners where they discussed the events of the day. Well, my family was like that. We had serious discussions at the dinner table every night. My family loved me. I was, uh, I, it wasn't that I was loved. It was just that I couldn't make contact very well with the people around me. My father was a, uh, by this, by the way, we had, we moved down when I was a very young child to uh, where I spent most of my life in the Ozark Mountains, down in the southern Missouri and northern Arkansas. And my father was a rock-ribbed, go-water Republican. My mother was a Roosevelt Democrat <laughs> from Chicago. And uh, we had five kids in the family, and they expected great things from all of us. Made it very clear that we were to get a good education. We had these discussions at the table and they were big arguments, kind of like your home group business meeting. <laughs> and as a result of these discussions with my mother and the father, we, uh, the children, we had two Democrats and two Republicans and a drunk. I never could make up my mind which of them was right. I could argue both sides. 
the thing that happened to me during this period of time, and it was exaggerated after I started drinking, was that I began to live two lives. I don't know if you can identify with that or not, but in my life, there were always a high road and a low road. And I tried both. I, I, I tried the high road. I tried to be the things my parents wanted me to be. They had high goals and expectations, and I started having high goals and expectations. And what happened in my life was that there came a time when I couldn't maintain and reach those goals, even the ones I set for myself. So when I could no longer maintain and reach those goals, and my behavior didn't match those goals, I began to lower my goals so that I might be able to reach them. And when it happened again, I'd lower them some more. And this self-esteem thing that they talk about these days, I guess I didn't have a lot of it by the time I was a teenager. We'd moved out to Missouri, and I was in a town for two years, and I didn't have any friends. And one night they asked me if I'd like to go out to a party that they were going to have. It was the last football game of the year, and they asked me on Monday morning if I wouldn't like to go along. They were going to go down to the Oklahoma State line to this liquor store and buy some beer and then go out to this dance hall out in the country where there was a country band playing and they served minors. You could bring your own booze and go in there and dance and everything. And it sounded great to me, although I wasn't much interested in most of the things that they mentioned that were going to happen. I didn't know anything about cigarettes or or booze or girls or anything. So it was just a, it was just being asked. I mean, I just being accepted, just being somebody wanting me to come someplace. As a matter of fact, I started thinking about it on Monday and I thought about it all week and I got nervous about it and everything. And I guess that all, all that week when I was thinking about that party ahead of time is the closest I ever came to social drinking. Because I thought I was going to get the girl and have these drinks and be the, you know, the suave, debonair. And, uh, you know, that's pretty hard for a 15-year-old anyhow to be those things. And when we got down there and I took my first drink, I wasn't any of those things. What I was was interested in drinking because I liked the effect it produced in me. I I think three things happened to me that night that happened every time I drank. I drank to get drunk. I got in trouble. And I didn't stop until an outside source stopped me. Now that didn't happen every time I drank, but it happened every time I started drinking. Eventually, in that cycle, as I went up and down and up a little and down a little more for the next 20 years, that happened to me every time. And when I started drinking, I started having those two lives more pronounced, the high road and the low road. I, I, the rest of the time in high school, I gave up being on sports. 
I gave up on being in the band. I gave up being editor of the newspaper. And all I did was start getting in trouble more of the time, trying to be around the people who drank. And after I got out of high school and got on my own, I just went wild with it. I went down. I tried to get into the University of Texas. And, and uh, I, I was down there and uh, joined a fraternity like I thought my father would want me to do. And the only problem with those guys, they had great parties, but when it was over, they wanted to go home. I wanted to go to Mexico. Pretty soon I wasn't getting back in town on Sunday morning, and I was pretty soon I was missing the Sunday afternoon study hall. And after I was there almost a full semester and it was time for exams, I found out there was one 7.30 Monday morning class I'd never been to. And uh, so I did, uh, you know, what a fledgling alcoholic would do. I, I left. And I suppose that the University of Texas still doesn't know that I was there. And I went on from there and hitchhiked around the country Embarrassed to go home because I knew my father would be very discouraged with my behavior. And after a few months, I came back and I started another college. And uh, it went better there for three semesters, and then the same thing started happening again. Started drinking real bad just before Christmas, around Thanksgiving time. And... Uh, I was back in the band at the University of Arkansas, and we were going down to the Cotton Bowl that year in Dallas, Texas, to march in the Cotton Bowl parade, and our team was playing. So I went down about Christmas time, uh, you know, a week ahead of time, sort of check things out and find out where the gear went and all that, and find out where the good party places were and all that. And I went on a pretty good buzz and toot down there and uh, came around... New Year's morning and it's time for the parade to start and I showed up and I'm not sure I had all my uniform with me. I had the seven day growth of beard, hung over and I went back to the back of the band just to kind of, uh, well, throw up, I guess. <laughs> and uh, while I was back there, kind of through the haze back there, I saw the Marine Corps Drubbin' Bugle Corps. And, uh, boy, those guys, they had those spit-shine shoes and the pressed uniforms and all clean-shaven and back straight and everything like that. And I looked back there and I said, that's for me. <laughs> so instead of going back to Arkansas to do my finals... I drove up to Kansas City, Missouri, and I joined the Marine Corps. Now, there's nothing unusual about that. Every time I go someplace, I always meet 15 or 20 people that have been in the Marine Corps. But you'll find very few that have the same viewpoint that I do. That's the worst mistake I ever made. I mean... I wish I could say that I was a fine Marine and I defended our country and did all these things, but I can't lie to you. I showed up drunk and I went drunk, slept through my first Marine Corps roll call, spent my first six weeks in the Marine Corps on latrine duty, and that was the high point. After I got a boot camp, 
I got my first assignment to a base in Santa Ana, California, and uh, I had already decided the Marine Corps wasn't paying me, paying me enough for me to live in the style to which I wanted to become accustomed. So I went out and got in a job. I started loan sharking. While that business was building, I took a job as a bartender down at Pat's Bar down on 4th Street. Turn left off of the Santa Ana Freeway. Exit 16. I want to help Ann find it. took a job as a bartender down there, and I worked there a few weeks and so forth, and I started playing pool on the pool tables and, and uh, bowling machines that they had, and I started hustling Marines for drinks and dollars. And they had a, a long shuffleboard table there in the back, and, and uh, I started playing shuffleboard. Got pretty good at it. I called myself the Golden Arm. And after six months, I made number ten man on Pat's Bar's shuffleboard team. Well, I can see that doesn't impress you. <laughs> I've just spent 20 minutes telling you I've never done anything that was successful in my life. I'm number ten man on Pat's Bar's shuffleboard team. All right. We used to go up and down the coast of California playing in shuffleboard leagues and tournaments. Every bar on Sunday afternoon had a shuffleboard team. And we'd play in these and I'd have to have a few beers to get down and get the gold ar golden arm oiled, you know. And <clears throat> This is when my life just fell apart. Because about that time was when I met Karen. Now you gotta know that Karen is still to this day the prettiest woman I have ever met. She was to become my first wife. When Karen walked into a room, it just knocked me back on my heels. She was so gorgeous. And that's nothing compared to what I felt like when she walked out of a room. <laughs> now, <laughs> I know Karen never went to Al-Anon, and she never said it in these so many words. And in so many words, it told me that day that when all else fails and I have tried my way as much as I care to and have given up that anything's going to work, then what I have to do is pick up that set of spiritual tools laid at my feet by the people of Alcoholics Anonymous. And then the steps became the way for me to find that solution because I didn't have an easy time with God never had and 
I went. I, I did. Things didn't automatically get better that day that I joined AA. As a matter of fact, I went back to my home group, and in what I thought was the ultimate sacrifice and humility of mankind for all time, I asked the windbag to be my sponsor. And the windbag told me, if you want what we have and are willing to go to any lengths to get it, you're ready to take certain steps. And he took me through the steps. Didn't tell me to work them. Didn't tell me to go read the big book. He took me through the steps. And I didn't work them perfectly. Far from it. I went right from one to eight because I was working the first step in my mind one night on a Thursday night going back to Joplin, Missouri where I always drank, going to a meeting, wasn't feeling too good and I was on the first step and long about that time in the car I decided to work my eighth step. I thought Thursday night, Holiday Inn, Max Brown's band, that's where I always met Marty. I ought to make amends to Marty. So I went down to the Holiday Inn at 9 o'clock after the meeting to make amends to Marty, take my ninth step. Mind you, I haven't taken any ninth step with my wife or my children or anybody else, just Marty. And I went in there and the band started playing and after a few minutes, Marty came in. She saw me and she came over and sat down. I said, Marty, I guess you noticed I haven't been around for a couple of years. I've been trying to change my life. I joined AA, haven't been drinking, and I know I treated you wrong when I came into AA. Left you without telling you where I was going. About that time, Marty started rubbing her hand up and down my thigh. And I started getting that old feeling. Next miracle. I got out of there without taking a drink and without going with Marty. I don't know why. It just happened. I have never known why these miracles happen for any of us. They just do if we show up, if we try on a daily basis to work the steps to the best of our ability. AA has just been like that. My life today could never have been like I expected. I had these whole set of different things that I thought my life would be. My life is very good today, but it's not without problems. I've gone through financial hard times. 
What's new? We all have. You know, I went through an, another divorce. NAA. My wife left me. I didn't want that. And I wasn't drinking. But I think my alcoholism contributed as much as it did when I was drinking. Because I still had all my character defects in place. But when that door closed, other doors opened. It was that same summer that I was offered the job to come out here. And... uh it's funny because they had talked to me a couple of years before about that job and I had said no because I had kids in school and had a family and I was trying to start a new business. Well, I called them up and I said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm available now. My, my, my business went bankrupt and my wife left me. <laughs> kids are no longer in school. I'm nothing what you wanted, but I'm here. That's how I got the GSO. Same way you got elected GSR. <laughs> Somebody told you your, your turn. I don't know. Has anybody ever had a uh, been elected GSR? What's the GSR do? I, when I got GSR, I said, "Well, what do you do?" And they said, "You just go." I don't know what you do. You just go down to <laughs> go down to such and such place on Tuesday evening, and they'll tell you. So I went down there. And they didn't tell me. So I started trying to figure it out for myself. After two years, I thought I had a handle on it. And they say, not your turn anymore. <laughs> that's kind of the way AA has been with me in service. And that's kind of the way how I got here. Got a friend here named Susan. She... That door opened after I came out here, too. We've been going together about five years now. And uh, she says, when am I going to make it into your story? <laughs> I'd like you to meet Susan. Would you stand up, please? And you all have the uh, the proud fact of sharing with me my first AA talk as a granddad. Born the 4th of July from a wonderful little daughter-in-law who wouldn't speak to me five years ago, and a son who I had left behind those many years ago, who have come back into my life and welcomed me as a full parental partner to their family. That's, to me, a personal miracle that I could accredit to AA, I certainly will accredit to the God of my understanding. So, 
Where does this get us all? This AA thing. We all know we don't work it every day just right. The miracle of AA is is that it is there and keeps us together in spite of our collective shortcomings. The traditions tell us that everything we do and say ought to be about unity. Because if we don't learn to live together, we'll certainly die alone. That's what AA is. It means that much to all of us. And it's wonderful that we can have this time of fellowship, this wonderful time of meeting new friends and seeing old friends. But that's frosting on the cake to me. The real thing is, is that Fritz took me through the steps. And after some false starts, and after Fritz moved, I went back and asked that little hick from Maysville, Arkansas, Charlie, to be my sponsor. And we got in and worked the steps the way the big book tells us to. And um, I did it to the best of my ability. And in the twelfth step, something happened. It said that as a result of these steps, we have a spiritual awakening. And after all these years, starting with those Sunday school pins, I found my God, my way, as a result of these steps. For just one moment before I close, I want to talk to some of those people who were in the room last night with less than a year of sobriety. Would you show me your hands again? The rest of you can stay if you want to. But I want to talk to you all just a moment. Because AA gave me so much, I wish I could share it with you. I wish I could say the things that would lead you in to the miracles that happened to me in AA. I wish I could give you this program. But the AA program is like this $5 bill that I have in my hand. I'd like to give it to you, but I can't. <laughs> You've got to reach out and take it. AA is like this $5 bill. I wish you could have it. I wish I could give it to you, but I can't. You've got to take it. 